Hello and welcome back to The Great Game, uh, an Australian mega game podcast. Um, this is episode two um, and I'm Patrick. I'm Jack. And um, this episode we're talking to Nelly from the Melbourne Mega Gamers. Um, our conversation's pretty pretty interesting. It veers all over the place, talking about how the Melbourne Mega Games started up and how their first game went. Um, watch the skies. And then we also managed to actually extract a few glimpses from um, Nelly about the future for Melbourne Mega Games. So exciting stuff. Uh, let's get to it. Thanks for coming on, um, Nelly. No, thanks for having me. Um, so we've been talking to you just briefly about watching Run the Skies earlier this year, um, yourself and Tristan Cliff, and you, mm-hmm. you guys are essentially the uh, Melbourne Mega Games. Did you want to just um, give us a quick um, intro to you and how you, how you got into all this? Um, yeah, so I, I played my first mega game in 2018. Um, it was actually Jack's God Emperor um, that was running by uh, pulp mega gamers who are a Victorian-based group, but they're down in Geelong. But they came up to Melbourne to run the game with um, the Tabletop Gaming Society, which is the board games club at the uni that I was then doing my undergrad at. Um, and sort of through my love of D&D and uh, several friends, sort of badgering me uh, to get involved. I played the game and I loved it. Um, and then this year, uh, much earlier in the year, Tristan was talking about uh, trying to run another mega game. And sort of from there, we have sort of a history of taking on big projects, doing crazy things, and this is what Melbourne Mega Games became. So we started it. And we ran Watch the Skies, and now you're gearing up to run for the crown, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> it sounds like a uh, like a, a typical starting for a mega game group. Someone who's used to taking on uh, huge projects, maybe more than they should, and then mm-hmm. just diving headfirst. Um, that's great. Um, Jack, did you want to take us into a bit of the, the history of the game? Yeah, well, first I just wanted to say it makes me extremely happy that, that God Emperor was um, how you all got your start. I just went, was God Emperor um, the first time you two had really... Um, was that what introduced you to the concept of a mega game or had you heard a bunch about it before then? Um, for me, I think it was... So it was really exposure to it. For Tristan, he played in Watch the Skies 2 with Pulp previous to that and I think when the information about that came up I kind of dismissed it as something that was sort of too nerdy too complicated for me to get my head around it at something I wasn't really interested in but it wasn't until Tristan sort of specifically asked me if I would want to come and play God Emperor that I actually thought about it looked into it and decided it was something that I wanted to do awesome Awesome, yeah. Um, so from there, once you um, uh, once you got your start and you kind of formed Melbourne Mega Games, um, was that idea kind of simultaneous with the idea of starting out with Watch the Skies? And how did you get started? You know, with the first steps there. Um, it was it was very much simultaneous, I think, because we decided we wanted to run a game, and the discussion from there was, well, sort of, how do we want to frame that? Do we want to 
make it something that we're asking Pulp to facilitate every time we want to do or should we just start our own group in Melbourne? And after some discussions with Pulp where we we really didn't want to step on their toes and make them feel like we were pushing them out and they were very, very good to us. They really helped us get off the ground. Um, We decided to create Melbourne Mega Games. Both of us have a history with university clubs, so there's very much a lot of experience in the room in terms of uh, dealing with organisations and finances and managing events. And when it's just the two of us, I think it's much easier to actually make things happen than when you're trying to negotiate with a group of you know, five to eight people to get one person to go and sort out the bank stuff, one person to set up a Facebook group, um, all of the other things that sort of cause a sort of social group to meld together properly. Awesome. And so you, you've said uh, uh, previously that Melbourne Mega Games is it's basically you and Tristan. Um, how have you, uh, I guess, um, portioned out the work in, um, uh, in that duo? Um, it really depends it's sort of what we're both doing at that point in time. Tristan works full time and I'm studying a master's degree. So really depending on our availability, we sort of make a to-do list, split up the to-do list based on who wants to do what or who feels like uh, they could do that particular job better. And then we can work from there. So we've watched the skies what happened was that we, we we needed to set up a bank account that required both of us to go. Um, I think I put everything up on Facebook while Tristan st- sort of started working through the rules and deciding what we wanted to keep, what we wanted to revamp. And then from there, I put all of the rules into the rule book. Um, we set up an email account. Both of us were emailing um, different sort of groups to try and get um, coverage on social media um, so, yeah, it really depends a bit, but it's mostly just because there's two of us, it's really easy to divide things um, and communicate over that. I think the goal eventually is that as we get more experienced control players coming through, we'll be able to pass off more jobs onto uh, that sort of community. And eventually we'll be able to sit back and only really facilitate the mega game by having it branded as Melbourne Mega Games and using, so I guess, the bank account and the identity, but having people who have controlled for us previously drive the whole thing, and so that Tristan and I can eventually go back to playing games every now and then. Yeah, awesome. That sounds great. So, what kind of, um, I guess, what would you say is the size of your audience at the moment, and what's your goals for that in the future as you uh, develop and grow? Hmm. Melbourne Mega Games, I think at the moment we've, we've only got about 100 likes on Facebook. We had 50-something players for uh, Watch the Skies, and I think we've got 50-something again for For the Crown, which is, I guess, your average for a mega game. It's interesting because we've got this partnership with the Tabletop Gaming Society, and their membership base is theoretically about 500 people, I think, but in practice they've got maybe, I guess, another 50 to 100 who come to regular events those being both board game sessions and D&D games, and they're only continuing to grow. So we sort of, we get that audience a little bit as well. And there are also a couple of other clubs and social groups who we're hoping to sort of form more uh, tangible partnerships with, like um, the Melbourne University uh, Model United Nations group. 
who they run crisis councils as well, which are a very similar game to mega games. But I think I'm not entirely sure that I want Melbourne mega games to get so huge because once we push past sort of overfilling our events by a little bit, we end up having to run, we uh, we end up either having to decide that uh, we're going to lock 50 people out of playing the game just because we reach capacity or we run games twice. And I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it at the moment. Um, but I do, I love mega games and I want everyone to enjoy the hobby. So I'm sort of a, a bit torn over that. I would like us to grow and share that experience, but I don't necessarily want that to come at the detriment of the quality of games that we run or the frequency at which we have to run them for the sake of Tristan and my sanity. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's a, that's a conflict I've encountered myself, I think, is that, um, you know, the, the bigger you grow, um, the bigger your audience is, the more people you have to turn away. And the only way to solve that is to run more mega games, which does start to really, yeah, like you said, come at a cost to your sanity because, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to run by any means. Um, so um, just talking on that, uh, so once you had that idea, you've got that plan, you've got the dynamic duo together, um, how did you go about getting more control people and getting people interested in assisting to actually run the game? Control for Watch the Skies was quite challenging because we didn't, we, we sort of set a standard for ourselves that we didn't want someone who hadn't played at least a game before to come in and be running one because that would, to us, lower the quality of the game. And we ended up doing that anyway just because we were so tight on uh, the available people. Um, but it came down to, I think, including Tristan, there were four people who had controlled a game before, um, two who had played it before, and two who hadn't ever been to a mega game before but were uh, Dungeon Masters for D&D. So they had at least that level of understanding. Um, but it was very much just sort of asking people who we knew had been involved or were likely to be involved. And then I think Tristan went through a very similar process for for the Crown, except that we just had a much longer list of people who could reasonably meet our criteria of having played because we'd run uh, Watch the Skies. And so there was a long list of people who we sort of knew to either be DMs or be very rules-focused people and could reasonably jump up to a control position. It's just a matter of approaching them and saying, hey, is this something you'd be interested in and working through there? I think the biggest issue that we have with control teams at the moment is that we we have no women. I'm the only girl in that group as far as that goes. And for for the Crown, that's just a matter of availability because a lot of the other girls who would otherwise be interested are actually just not in Australia at that point, including myself. Um, but there's a couple of, there's a couple of them on holiday who would otherwise have put their hand up and said, yeah, I'm definitely interested in that. And they're just not around in November for various reasons. Yeah. Also, I, I'm glad to hear that's a, that's a really um, key goal of uh, yours because I think that's incredibly important, um, especially as kind of mega games grow and evolve. Um, yeah. To just expand that. Um, audience and the the people who are um, running them, definitely. Um, uh, I, I guess the last thing I'll ask is uh, just 
so you decided on watch the skies for your your first game um was that decision primarily just because you know it's it's the big name in mega games it's the one thing and having now run it um i, I guess what are your thoughts and, and would you do it again so partly we chose watch the skies because it is the big name that everyone knows we also chose it because pulp had all the materials and were willing to loan them to us and I think if we'd chosen any other game, the cost of starting that event would have been much higher. Tickets were priced at, um, I think, 10 and 15 So $10 if you were a member of the Tabletop Gaming Society, that's part of our partnership with them, um, benefits to their members, and then $15 if you were not involved with them, which is, I think, given that for God Emperor, I think the tickets were $40, quite low for main games in general. And $40 is quite reasonable when you're trying to pay for venue hire and print all of the materials. But given that we didn't have to do either of those things, we tried to keep it really low while still, you know, putting a little bit of money in the bank so that for future games, if we do have to buy a game and print all of the materials, it's like we have sort of a little bit of a buffer there to help us through that so that we're not putting all of that cost on the players. So that was, those were the two main factors in making that decision. Would I do it again? I don't I don't particularly love Watch the Skies in terms of the way it plays out. Um, but I still think given the other two practical constraints, I would make that same decision again. But I, I wouldn't run Watch the Skies again, I don't think. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And um, so did you achieve that goal of having, you know, a bit of money set aside for the next game? Yeah, we did. We've got... Uh, awesome. Yeah, enough enough to sort of just cushion extra costs. Yeah, awesome. That's great to hear. That's awesome. Um, so I thought I might steer us, if, if that's cool, I might steer us to the day itself and how the game all, all played out. Mm-hmm. Um, Sounds great. How Overall, how do you, how, like, I mean, in a nutshell, how did it go? Was it a success? It was your first first event, uh holding it as the the Melbourne Mega Games. Um, how did it go? Um, I was really, really proud of it in the end. I would consider it a great success. I think if you'd asked me this the week after the game, I would not have given you that answer because the majority <laughs> of the feedback we'd gotten had made me feel like it was a disaster. But by comparison to sort of the way Mega Games run generally, I think none of the problems that we faced were based on decisions that Tristan and I had made, really. Um, but we we sold out. Um, everyone seemed to enjoy it as far as can be said. I know that based on the fact that our second game has also sold out, clearly we did something right. And to go from, I think, never having run an event like this before um, to having, you know, 58 people in a room for seven hours who all walked away being like, yeah, I would come back to that. I think it was a great success. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it's a really, it's quite a significant thing to pull off on your first time running a game. You've just got that one, one experience under your belt and you really managed to bring, you know, 50 or so people into, into it that were, it sounds like quite new to the space. Um, As far as, you know, narrative goes, but also just the design and the carrying out, um, the, the mechanics of the game and just the way the event went all day. Do you have any highlights specifically from you or do you think there are any clear highlights for the players? Uh, 
So I think, honestly, the aliens made that game what it was. They they did an incredible job. They were mostly, the alien teams were where we, we put a couple of the, so the way we do our registration is that you can register as a team or as an individual. And we put most of the individuals into the aliens group. So it was a group of people who didn't really know each other. And one of them came out and sort of took the lead and he wrote them an entire backstory that was very, it was quite different to sort of the implications in the original Watch the Skies book, which is the sort of the aliens are there to sort of terrorize humans and conduct experiments and are potentially a malicious force. And he decided that the aliens were going to be um, sort of curious researchers um, who were running an experiment on Earth. And this was partly through the way Tristan had framed it to them. Um, he sort of gave them the opportunity to do this. So they ended up deciding that they were researching Earth and what humans were doing. And they weren't sure if they were going to help the humans or potentially try and shut them down. And second that the first nuke went off, they were like, nope, that's it, we're out. We, humans are irredeemable, unsavable, we can't do this. And so they encased them, they encased the Earth in a Dyson sphere which they did by convincing the president of the US and his science officer to come up to the base on Mars and press the big red button. And to me, that was the highlight of the day, watching the US uh, team seal their own fate by encasing the Earth so that no one could get out and nothing could get back in, and then realising that he was stranded on Mars forever. Um, <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. It sounds like a real, a classic staple of Watch the Skies or any of its iterations, having the aliens um, cause some kind of hijinks like that that ends up pulling the, the narrative together. Um, mm. That sounds great. Um I wanted to go to, to jump back as well um, to some of the feedback you were getting and also just get your perspective. You were saying that you feel it was a success. Um, everything that you guys pulled off was was pretty impressive. And most of the things that the feedback was perhaps critiquing were not necessarily based on your decisions. Um, all of that being said, it, uh, what, were the, what were the key lessons that you learned? Do you think um, that you'll step out next time and, and, and address head on as you're planning in, in like a future event? Um, I think, I think one of the key lessons for me is very much that you can't please everyone, that there are always going to be elements of either the thematic part of the game or the mechanical elements that people are going to disagree with just on a personal level and that that's okay. Um, and as we sort of run different games, that will smooth itself out and people will be less critical and turning around to us and being like, I really didn't like that. Um, I think for Watch the Skies, there were some mechanical decisions that we could have had a bit more clarity on in our decision-making process to the players to make them, so I guess to create this understanding of why we'd done certain things. I think the nukes were a big one with that that sort of mostly got resolved after the game. People were very frustrated that they felt like they had nukes had almost no impact and Tristan and I have very much discussed this and come to the conclusion that neither of us really like nukes as a mechanic in mega games because it's very difficult to actually have them have a realistic impact because realistically when a nuke goes off that's it game over if the US gets nuked that's it that's them out of the game uh, if you want to have some kind of realistic element but that's really really unfair to then the players who did get nuked um, because what do they do for the rest of the game? Um, so 
that's, I guess, one of the things that having clarity and communication between control and players, I guess in hindsight, having that come out after the game is still the better way to do it. But it's one of the things that definitely uh, caused a lot of the players to struggle, I think. Um, The other feedback that I think players had that I was a bit like, whatever, dismissive of, was uh, not understanding how differentiation of decisions between what is in the rules of the rule set that was given to us by the designer that we bought that we can't modify versus what are the decisions that as controlled you can make to influence the game. And I don't know that that's something for a game like Watch the Skies that was not something designed by us that we can necessarily fix, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. So you're saying that a lot of the feedback was about, I guess, the rule set of Watch the Skies, not about what you did with that rule set. Is that right? Yeah, exactly that. And like some of it, it's like I could pass that on to Jim Warman and he can do whatever he wants with it, but I somehow don't necessarily think he'd really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but I think he, I think he's heard it enough throughout the years. Exactly. <laughs> I imagine so. I think there's been a lot of feedback. Yeah, definitely. So you, it sounds like you have put a lot of thought into the mechanics, and the players have as well. Um, what about the logistics of the day? This was, I think you said that Tristan had been involved in a previous, helping run a previous event, but this was your first sort of rodeo. How did, mm-hmm. how did it go? Did, did things go to plan or did you learn any lessons about sort of the administration and the governance of the game from the control perspective? I think to me it went exactly as expected. One of, one of the big logistical things that we discussed was whether we wanted to put a lunch break in or otherwise cater the game, and we decided we didn't want to get catering because it would just be uh, too much of a cost. But the lunch break decision we went back and forth on a bit, and it was we also got feedback on this where players were saying that would have been really great. But part of what makes a mega game so special as an experience is that you actually don't have time to stop and that that would very much interrupt the flow of the game and it's not like people would stop playing over a lunch break anyway. Um, mm. So that was, in the end, we were like, well, that's not happening. We're just going to have to tell people to bring enough food to get them through, including something that is actually of sustenance, like not just junk food that you're going to snack on, but something you can eat for lunch. And I think I ended up ordering Uber Eats for the entirety of control team at the end because I was like, it's one o'clock. I haven't seen any of you eat. This is not acceptable. Um, <laughs> and made that happen but um in terms of the rest of the game as a control player I think it sort of very much met my expectations of what was going to happen um but that's partly because I'd been in the room before as a player I think for the control players who I guess had only dm'd it was a very different experience and I'll be interested to see how they go in the second game that they're running I've definitely had that experience myself of of people uh, letting themselves go hungry in a mega game. I, I think for my first one of run of Watch the Skies, uh, we had a little um, uh, someone running a little cafe just off the side of the game area, and they that person who was running that unfortunately just didn't do anything all day because no one went to them because they were too wrapped up in everything that's happening, and they're like, oh, I've got to get to the next turn. So, you know, yeah, I, I think it's definitely something that can happen. Um, I, I wanted to uh, just quickly go back to something you mentioned, sorry, briefly, uh, about the nukes. Um, 
and the issues with that mechanically. I, I wanted to ask something that people have said a lot about Watch the Skies and about Mega Games in general is that you get this last turn madness where everyone releases the nukes and it always just ends up in a nuclear apocalypse. Um, did, did you have any issues with that in your game? Um, no, because the nukes were mostly released, I think, around, it was like maybe turn four and sort of turn seven, turn eight, which is why we ended up with this whole discussion of why the nukes in Watch the Skies ended up as a very sort of undervalued mechanic that are a little bit useless um, as opposed to having mm. something that has the real gravity of mutually assured destruction where you end up entirely knocking out a team. Um, the last turn madness was very much the aliens trying to get the Dyson sphere, as they called it, off the ground, as it were, and having that encase the earth. I think because I was I was in the alien room for a lot of that turn, um, sitting back and laughing at the U.S., agreeing to sign their uh, death certificate, basically, uh, that I didn't really <laughs> see much of what was happening um, for the rest of the humans. But there was, there was a, there's always that scramble to see what can we get done, what's going to happen. And I think we ended up cutting the last turn off slightly early because the second that the U.S. helped the aliens, that was it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, we, we talked about the, the key, like the favorite moments of the day. Um, we had a bit of a chat before this offline, but um, I was just wondering about um, any of the, the feedback that you did receive from players and whether there were any low moments of the game mechanically or just narratively and whether you've learned any lessons from those. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the biggest piece of feedback that was a really legitimate negative criticism was that we'd gone with the suggestion in the Watch the Skies game of adding a fifth player to teams of four as the vice president role in order to allow more players to participate. And in hindsight, mm. that's not the way to do it with Watch the Skies, with the way the mechanics work. I think if you are really trying to reach your maximum capacity, then adding more countries is going to be at least more enjoyable for the players. Like with that, you will have to get more control on board to keep the game actually manageable. But the vice president role that we had left most of those players, and there were only a handful of them because there weren't that many teams of five, they were just mostly sitting at their tables not feeling like there was anything that they could do. And I think part of that was the way that we communicated sort of the unstructured play as a feature of Mega Game. There wasn't, they didn't take the initiative to take on any particular role-playing element and engage with some of the other people in that position or you know, really participate in the diplomacy element. So partly that, but it was also partly that that role was a very weak one and I would very much change that going into it a second time. Yeah, right. And I think that's something that we're facing. I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people face with Watch the Sky specifically because the roles are very well defined in that. Mm. Um, it's something that we're looking at with For the Crown as well because... Those who've played it um, and those who are going to play it shortly will know that the roles are, are pretty similarly def defined throughout sort of jurisdictions of the game and we're, we're trying to consider whether teams need that offsider. Um, it's definitely about setting the, uh, the expectations about what they can do uh, and what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, all that said and done, it sounds like it was a great success. It was a, it was a, it was a really good sort of start for the Melbourne Mega Games. Um, 
do you have anything that you can share regarding what's what, what your plans are next? Obviously, you've got For the Crown coming shortly, mm-hmm. um, but then beyond that, next year, in the future, what's um, we talked a little bit about the ambition where you really want to outsource and you want to get a lot of people involved and running their own events. Um, what's around the corner? Yeah, that's a very much sort of the long-term plan is that uh, neither Tristan nor I are necessarily certain that we'll stay in Melbourne through our careers and that this is something that Melbourne Mega Games is really important to us and we'd like it to have a future. And if eventually one of us needs to step down, that we'll have someone to pass it on to to keep it going. Um, But it's also partly about the fact that Tristan and I love these games because we enjoy playing them and we would really like that opportunity again um as much as you know pop will run their games down in geelong and i'm fairly certain that both of us will go to the next one um having a bigger community around melbourne mega games who were full of people who are interested in running them and facilitating them and helping us would be fantastic um in terms yeah. of, sort of game plans uh we're looking at maybe having three games next year um of which we haven't quite decided what will be i am uh, so September 19th Saturday is Talk Like a Pirate Day and I personally think it would be hilarious to run a pirate-themed mega game on Talk Like a Pirate Day um, <laughs> because why not? And I think pirates are a very accessible theme for mega games and part of what I'd like to do in sort of our first, maybe, I guess, five to eight games is to run very different games thematically and mechanically so that we introduce people to sort of the spectrum of what mega games can be. Um, Because, you know, I started with God Emperor, which is a very sort of Game of Thrones fantasy theme. Watch the Skies is sci-fi. For the Crown is a bit more sort of historical fiction flavoured. And then looking at something like Trope High is very different from all three of those things in a, you know, sort of much broader way. Um, and then, of course, as we've talked about uh, doing uh, a wide area mega game where we run something in Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney simultaneously is something that I, I love that idea. I think it would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that'd that's, be awesome. That's you going again, uh, diving into the unknown. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it sounds very <laughs> exciting. Definitely. I'd love to. I'd love to see you run a run a pirate mega game. Um, I don't know if you know, but Pat ran one which I went to called Chaos in the INC, which I, I was a big fan of, and uh, always so excited to to see more mega games with different um, and interesting themes. I think um, I think it's definitely the case that mega game designers we've really only started to scratch the surface in in terms of um, the different themes and situations that a mega game, the mm-hmm. kind of mechanics and the way a mega game works could be applied to different interesting things that don't fall into the typical sci-fi or fantasy banners. So it sounds awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think I actually, I haven't heard of Chaos of the IMC. I've been looking at Jim Wallman's Blood and Thunder, which I don't think is for sale. So I'm going to write to him and ask if I can have it because it's the, the team design for that is very different. I think compared to two of the others um, by another designer who I think his name is John Sharp. His is very much more, uh, I guess, it's historically accurate. Jim Wallman's is a bit more, I guess, Pirates of the Caribbean, 
romanticized idea of what a pirate is, which to me is more fun. Like there's a reason that pirates are portrayed a certain way in media and literature. And it's because that's a more exciting take on what a pirate is. And I think that would be really fun to play, but the teams are full ships. So it's 17 people trying to communicate and work on a plan together. And I just, I think that would be a challenge to our regular players and be really, really entertaining to watch. That <laughs> wow, that sounds amazing. 17 players on a team. I, I, I can't even imagine what that, I mean, that sounds awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it gets, I think it gets subdivided into smaller groups within the ship, but it's still ultimately you are playing as that ship and you, you know, they subdivide it so that you can have, a, I guess, a mutiny element to it. Um, but you've still got your pirate captain who is in charge and then sort of ranks below that. Um, but yeah, that's something that I'd really like, like to look into. That sounds amazing. Um, one more one more question from me. It sounds like you do have some plans and some ideas of where to go. Um, but beyond all those sort of games that you're able to get your hands on, will we be seeing any sort of original designs out of Melbourne? Yes, absolutely. It's it's something that Tristan and I have talked about. And at the moment, I think we're, we need to get a few more games under our belt to really get a grasp on sort of the nature of a mega game and to find out what we like and don't like about mechanics and how to play. But there are a couple of, I think mostly historical themes that I'm really keen on seeing. I would love a Vikings kind of game. Um, mm. There's, uh, I've got a list. Um, something with uh, <laughs> a mafia would be fantastic uh, as well. Um, the Roman Empire is another historical one that would be really, really fun to play around with, I think. Um, but then, you know, you got things like uh, Wild West, uh, anything in terms of uh, like Reformation England and the Renaissance and the French Revolution kind of periods of historical um, uh, stress, I guess, are very, very good themes. And like, I'm, I'm a history major. That's where this is coming from. Um, so there are, yeah. that's very much my uh, area of interest. But I think with Tristan, he's, more interested in the fantasy and sci-fi spectrum. So we should get something very interesting out of that combination. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Yeah, that makes me really happy to hear that, um, yeah, you'll be producing some original design at some point. That's very exciting. Um, awesome. Um, if you're, if you're uh, looking at doing that kind of mafia gangster mega game, um, I know that Andrew Stackhouse is a designer who's made a rule set that has that kind of theme in set in prohibition mm -hmm. with a, a gangster mafia theme. So, um, yeah, if that's something you're looking into, definitely get in touch with him at some point. Cool. Absolutely. But yeah, as like sort of what I was talking about before with the themes, I think I'm very focused on the historical element. Tristan is, I, you know, he's a Star Wars fanboy forever. Um, mm -hmm. There's, looking at something like trope high that is uh i mean it's still it's got a supernatural element to it but it's based in a high school i think really it's as you said we haven't really scratched the surface of what mega games can do thematically and i think that's something that i'm keen to think about and see how i can draw something out of that concept it's definitely sort of a um a rabbit hole to go down for sure um something that i discussed pre um, in a recent conversation maybe with you, Jack, that I've just got this this uh, 
the sickness now where everything that I look at, I kind of consider whether or not it could be turned into a mega game. Um, <laughs> so um, it's a uh, get used to it. Um, and I think that, you know, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of awesome stuff will come from it, especially with the background that you two have. Um, right. Well, um, we might wrap it up there. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to add on um, Nelly or anything that you hadn't really mentioned about the game that you'd no, like to? I think we pretty much covered it. I, there's there's always more I can say about uh, highlights of the event in terms of what players did that really surprised me. Um, like the introduction at some point, and I forget whose fault this was, whose, or whose genius this was to introduce an alien baby to the Earth players. And I think China <laughs> ended up with an alien baby that they spent half the game raising and then it went missing. Um and then it turned out like the US had engineered that and that it actually was all the aliens we were manipulating players because yeah, at some point the entirety of uh, the US's uh, defense personnel just didn't show up to work because they were actually aliens. Um, oh, and the fact that the aliens, <laughs> the aliens convinced the humans, and this was part of their big strategy of infiltrating, was that they convinced the humans that they had come to Earth to track down a terrorist organization, which was a second set of aliens from the same species called Mortis Portis, who were out to destroy uh, all doors. Um, and the humans bought this completely without questioning anything, and it was actually all the same group of aliens trying to see how humans would react to the alien presence. Um, and the result of that was badly, and with nukes. So, yeah, there's <laughs> said about the, the genius that comes out of the certain role players, but yeah, it's great. It never ceases to amaze uh, what the players can come up with within the within the confines of the game it's um yeah it's really something else uh, an alien baby is is news to me though <laughs> I'll, I'll add that to my list <laughs> that, was, that was phenomenal it was it just the more that that story went on and the more people who got involved with it the funnier it became and the more dramatic it became because the the baby grew up and it became this fight between China who were saying no it's a Chinese citizen because it was born and raised here and I think the rest of the world being like no it's an alien and you need to deal with that (laughs) (laughs) amazing Uh, awesome that's yeah that's one of the most fantastic things about mega games is those kinds of stories that that come out of it so that's awesome Mm -hmm. to hear all right, fantastic. Well, um, yeah, thank you so much for spending this time, uh, Nelly. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And um, uh, so, uh, what's the easiest way for people to find you or Melbourne Mega Games if uh, if they want to track the next stuff that's going on with you? Um, definitely Facebook at the moment. Um that's where all of our information will be released and that's where you can find our contact details. The best thing to do is to uh, send us an email and then we can put you on our mailing list and that will be the other way that information about games will be distributed. Um, I'm not sure where our social media presence is heading in the future, but for the moment, Facebook and email are the best and our email is uh, melbournemegagames at gmail.com. Awesome. And uh, the Facebook page is uh, Melbourne Mega Games, right? Yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Uh, well, that sounds awesome. Um, uh, and uh, Patrick, uh, if 
people want to find you, where can they do that? Yeah, of course, they can find us at the Sydney Mega Gamers um, on Facebook as well. And that's um, we're on the sydneymegagamers.com. And just recently, very, very um, inactively, we're on Instagram as the Sydney Mega Gamers. Uh, Ooh, just nice. a social experiment. <laughs> oh, exciting, exciting. Awesome. And uh, yeah, for me, um, uh, if anyone wants to find uh, Brisbane Mega Games, you can do that on the Facebook page at Brisbane Mega Games is the name or at the website ashtowngames.com. Um, yeah, so that's a wrap from us. Thank you uh, so much, uh, everyone, for uh, joining in. And uh, yeah, very excited to see what comes out of Melbourne Mega Games in future. Me too. Thanks, Nelly. Awesome. Thanks, Cheers. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Great Game, an Australian Mega Games podcast. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about how to get started running a mega game.